Well done, Janet. <laughs> That's a... If you can have your Bibles open to chapter 4, um, I'll also refer to, we, we're not going to read chapter 5 because it's too long, uh, but I will refer to a whole bunch of passages in chapter 5, so it'd be great if you had the Bible with you, uh, so we can look at it together as we go through this. Um, but let's pray that God will speak to us um, through this very difficult passage. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that these things are written um, in the past, not directly to us, but for us. That these things have, these, these words of yours will still, still have the power to teach us and shape us and form us into people that you want us to be. And we pray that you will speak powerfully through these words that you have written uh, thousands of years ago, uh, that we may be shaped and we may live our lives um, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There have been many famous presidential, U.S. presidential speeches in the past, but one um, by Teddy Roosevelt uh, stands out for me, and it goes like this. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong the man stumbles, or whether the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust, and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in worthy in a worthy cause, who are at best, at the best, know, uh, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement. But who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knows victory nor defeat. It's an inspiring speech given at Sorbonne uh, long ago. But as you can see, the basic message of the speech is you have to be in the arena. You have to be willing to fight the battle in order to know the joy of the victory. But at least even if you fail, he says, that um, you will have failed um, daring great things. And you should not be as those um, cold and timid souls who neither knows victory nor defeat. Well, in some ways, Christianity is no different because following Jesus is not a spectator sport. When God calls us, God tells us to abandon everything and follow him. And this is an active thing that we must do. We're not called to sit in the sidelines to watch what God is going to do around the world. We're called to participate in God's mission. And we see in chapter 4, Judges chapter 4, three different people who participate in God's plan in different ways. Barak is a reluctant participant, isn't he? And jail is the substitute that God brings in. Um, uh, and, and, and Deborah is a willing participant in God's plan. God will accomplish his purpose, and we see uh, what it means to participate in this drama uh, 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 through these three characters. So let's look at the first two characters, Barak and Jail. 
The story of Barak and Jael and, and Deborah begins like any other story in the book of uh, Judges um, with A, B, C, D, E. Remember A, B, C, D, E? It starts with A, apostasy, when people abandon their faith again. And we see that in, in verse 1, they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so this time God banishes, that's B, God banishes them um, over to, hands, hands them over to J, uh, Jabin. But immediately, Jabin recedes into the background, and we're introduced to the main enemy in this story, Sisera, Jabin's, uh, Jabin's commander of the army. And the description of his rule is an important thing. Uh, it'll become important uh, later on. It's in verse 3. He had 900 iron chariots, and he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for over 20 years. And the time period is, this time period is a time of transition from Bronze Age to Iron Age, and not having that sort of technological advancement meant uh, a big disadvantage for the nation of Israel. And they were cruelly oppressed for 20 years. So the oppressed Israelites cry out, that's the sea, um, cry out to God in distress. And then God delivers up a deliverer, D, and this time Deborah. So we're at A, B, C, D, E um, so far. And this time, Deborah is raised as the deliverer, as the judge. And I, w- I don't want to go into the issue of female leadership uh, right now, because since that's not the point of the story. But I want to simply point out the fact that actually Deborah's leadership is accepted and followed by this patriarchal community without a hint of dissension. As you can see, she sends for Barak. She commands Barak. She's clearly in the position of leadership, not just as a prophetess, as a person who speaks on behalf of God, but as a governor, as the governor of the country. Anyway, but so in this time of distress, Deborah sends for Barak to relay a message that God has for him in verse 6. The Lord Yahweh, um, whenever the Lord is capitalized, um, all four letters are capitalized, it's God's name, isn't it? Yahweh, Yahweh, God of Israel, commands you, go, she says. And the command is to take 10,000 people to Mount Tabor. And he says, she says that if, if you go there, I will deliver Sisera and his army to you. Barak is apparently being asked because he's the military commander. He's the man of, of, of sword. He's supposed to lead them in this fight. But Barak makes a cowardly request in verse 8. He says, if you go with me, I'll go. If you don't go with me, then I won't go. It is, it, it is as cowardly as it sounds because, I mean, he wants assurance. He wants assurance. God's word clearly isn't enough at this moment. He wants assurance of somebody there with him. And he's a coward because, especially if you think about the context, he's asking a woman to come. He's asking a woman to come into battle knowing what happens in battles. Later on, we will hear of uh, uh, how, how terrible it is for some women in battlefield. But Deborah responds by saying in verse 9 that she would certainly go with him. And, but because of this request, the honor of killing Sisera will go to somebody else. So Barak takes up 10,000 troops up to Mount Tabor um, and goes with Deborah. And when Sisera, this is Jabin's commander, the, the, the enemy, hears about this, he gathers all of his men and goes into River uh, Kishon River Valley. And even there, um, as the story progresses, we see Deborah having to sort of encourage Barak. She says in verse 14, Go, 
But then she also asks gently, doesn't she, has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And as we see in verse 15, when the battle ensues, that God has gone before them. Yahweh routes Sisera and all the chariots, and Sisera has to get down from his chariots and run and escape on foot. And this is the time then when we are introduced to the heroine of the story, um, Jael. Back in verse 9, when Deborah says that a woman will have the honor of killing Sisera, you think, you assume that Deborah is going to be the one, but Jael is, uh, we're introduced to Jael here, but it's a different woman. A woman named Jael, um, wife of Heber the Kenite, a Gentile woman, as we're told in verse 17. And because of the alliance between Jabin and Heber the Kenite, Kenite, Sisera, as he's escaping, fine, when he arrives at Jael's house, he thinks that he has found refuge. And at first, it seems like he's, a perf- he's found a perfectly hospitable uh, host. Um, when Sisera arrives, arrives, Jael disarms him. He says, come, my lord, come right in. She even adds, don't be afraid. She then covers him up with a blanket we're told, to make him warm. When he asks for water, she seems to be generous. She doesn't give him water, but she gives him milk. But later on in chapter 5, we're told that he's given milk because she wants him to fall asleep. And he, he, he drinks it, he falls asleep, and Jael um, puts a little blanket over him to keep him warm again. But when he falls asleep, he takes the tent peg, which is a, a, a woman's job in that culture. He, she takes the tent peg and drives it uh, through his skull, killing him in one stroke. If you think about it, um, uh, Jael's role is almost exactly like Ehud's role, Ehud from last week. Uh, they're both, they both use deception. Both kill the enemy with a thrust of a weapon. There is a killing scene and a, also a discovery scene later on. And both are descri- described with these sort of gruesome detail, in gruesome details. And last week, the honor went to Ehud. And here, this week, the honor goes to jail. We'll talk about the violence in a minute, and that's the ending point. But the main message of this passage can't be any more clear, any clearer. When God's people fail to trust God and demands assurance, when God, in fact, has spoken to them already, they lose out on the opportunity to be used by God, to be used by God to the fullest extent. We need to step up and obey God's command when God commands us to go. When God wants to use us, we need to be willing. And this doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It wasn't easy for jail, if you think about it. She's taking a great risk. If she's discovered, if she fails, then it surely means death for her. But actually, even if she succeeds, Sisera is one, just one of the commanders. Jabin is still out there, and the battle will still continue. She's risking her life. It takes risk. Um, it takes risk for us to obey God's command. Barak hesitated. And according to chapter 5, actually, it wasn't just Barak. Whole tribes of Israel uh, hesitate or either don't go to this war because they're afraid, because they don't want to get involved. They stay home to play it safe. Truth is, often we don't get involved in God's plan because we want to play it safe, because we don't want to take that sort of risk of obeying God's command. 
We don't want to pay the cost of being involved. Often it's because we're selfish we don't get involved. But you might be thinking at this point, well, if God actually commands me to do something, of course, of course, I'll obey. But God has not personally said anything to me. If you are thinking like this, I knew that you were going to think like this. And so I want to talk to you directly this this morning. Remember the mission series that we've done. Remember the command that God gives us to care for the creation at home and in our workplace, to serve the society in doing the ministry of compassion and justice. Remember the command to go out and build the church, to go out and evangelize, and to make disciples of all nations, to participate through the activities of the church. These are mission, God's mission for God's people. These are God's command given clearly through the scriptures. These are something that we must participate in, find ways to participate in. And it's not that just what we are supposed to do. Actually, we're told to be a different kinds of people as well. God tells us, once again, through uh, scripture clearly, that we are to be a holy people. What this means is holy people, people who are set apart, who live differently from the rest of the world. It has an ethical dimension. We are to work and live with integrity. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to forgive the unforgivable. We are to go out and live a compassionate and loving life. These are all, there are all sorts of ethical commands that God commands us to do. Rather than asking, always asking, what is God asking me to do right now? Which seems to be always a question that people ask themselves. But ask, what has God, what does God command God's people to do? And how can I participate in those commands? How can I obey those commands that God has already given to us, especially through scriptures? So we have to participate in order to be, be part, to, to, to part, uh, we, uh, in order to be part of God's plan. The thing is, God's plan was going to be done. Whether you participated or not, whether Barak went or not, God's plan was going to be done. It's only who those participate get to receive God's, uh, this glory. It's only those who participate who in first hand witness what God does in this world, what God is able to do in this world. But if you're thinking, well, I put, it, put this off for so long, um, I don't want to give you uh, a very bleak picture of Barak, because Barak actually, in the end, does go forward. He did face the iron chariots. He fought against Sisera, and though he lost the honor of killing Sisera in the end, he is still remembered in, in Hebrew 11, uh, the, the hall of fame for, 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 for faith. He's remembered there. There are those who have, who, there are those here, I'm sure, who have been missing out because um, you haven't been participating in God's plan in some ways, but it's not too late. It's not too late. It's never too late to go forward and actually answer God's call of doing something different, uh, doing things for God, being living differently for God. God will use you if you put yourself forward. So that's uh, Barak and, and Jael, and now we come to the second point, Deborah, living with the fuller perspective. Clearly, Deborah is the model here. Deborah is the model that we should be following. But 
She's the prophet judge. She leads with wisdom. She's courageous. Remember when Barak says, come with me. She doesn't shrink from this, uh, the, uh, uh, from this request. She says, surely I will go with you. She and Othniel are the only ones in the entire book of Judges that seem to be without any flaw, mentionable flaw. But if you're asking, how can I be more like Deborah? How can I become this courageous person who does what God asks me to do all the time? How can I be a player in God's plan and not just a spectator? I mean, telling somebody, uh, telling a thick person who's not so bright, uh, be smarter isn't very helpful. And you know, telling a coward, be more courageous isn't very helpful. How can we be changed in a way? How can we be more like Deborah? And I think there is a hint in this book, chapter four and chapter, chapter, chapters four and five. The answer is that we have to see the world like Deborah sees the world. We haven't read chapter five, but we'll go into it right now. Chapter five is a retelling of the story in chapter four in poetry. But as you can see, it's very different. I mean, obviously, chapter four is prose and chapter five is poetry. Um, but besides the form, this, there's a change in substance here as well. Chapter 4 is very much matter of fact, historical events that's recorded. In chapter 5, you can make a good case that chapter 5 is an emotional and theological account of what has happened. For example, in chapter 4, Yahweh's name is only mentioned a couple of times in, in, in the introduction and a couple of times when Deborah mentions Yahweh's name to get Barak going. But the name of the Lord Yahweh appears at least 15 times in chapter 5. It's all over the place. It's from the very beginning. Praise the Lord, verse 2. I will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, verse 3. When you, O Lord, verse 4. Mountains quaked before the Lord, before the Lord in verse 5. And God of Israel and so on. Lord is there at almost every single passage in chapter 5. And although in chapter 4, Barak is the one who's going out to fight this battle... Actually, Barak's, the name isn't even mentioned in chapter 5. It's not Barak who's fighting the battle. In chapter 5, it's Yahweh who fights this battle. In fact, not a single line of this poem in chapter 5 shows the Israelites engaged in battle. They're not directly fighting. It's God who's fighting on their behalf. That's chapter 5. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 20, verses 20 to 21. This is how he, she sees the, hev- the whole world fighting against Sisera. Uh, verse 20. From the heavens, the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The aged old river, the river Kishon. March, O oh my soul, be strong. What she sees is God sending a rainstorm rainstorm, there's a downpour, and the river uh, swells up, and there was a flash flood that flooded that river valley, and what happened was that all the chariots, the 900 chariots, got stuck in the river valley and was uh, made, uh, it was neutralized um, there, and that's why Sisera has to get off his chariot and start running away on foot. But you see, Deborah sees God fighting in all of this. She doesn't say the river fell. She doesn't say the... the, She she sees these things and she sees the whole heavens fighting against Sisera. You see, Deborah sees the world differently. More fully, I want to say. She didn't just see chapter 4, matter of fact, historical events that are happening, but she saw chapter 5. 
To Deborah, 900 chariots, iron chariots, wasn't a problem. It wasn't uh, going to fight um, Sisera wasn't a problem because she knew she knew the power of God. She saw God at work in this world. To Deborah, heaven and earth and everything uh, everything on earth does God's will. That's not. This isn't courage. This isn't just about courage. This is actually seeing the world differently. And it's only when you see the world differently you can be more courageous. So if you want to participate in God's plan, for example, being courageous in your workplace, doing evangelism there, if you think making time is an issue for you to participate in God's mission work in in many different ways or to live radically different from other people, in order to do that, you have to see the world differently. You have to see God at work. You have to see God with you. You have to see God working out his plan of salvation all around the world and you participating in that world. That's how you need to see the world in order to be courageous. So do you believe that God is in your workplace? God is in the troubles that you're going through. God is working out your problems in your, uh, as you lift your eyes to him. Do you have chapter 4's perspective? Do you have chapter 5's perspective? Do you see that the world is full of God at work in this world? So that's Deborah who sees the world very differently. But before we go further, I want to once again address this issue of violence in this text. And like I pointed out, actually, there's a lot of similarities between chapter 4 and chapter 3, a story of jail and Ehud as well. So if you haven't heard, you weren't here last week to hear about the violence and what the role of violence is in the book of Judges, may I just also may I just recommend that you download last week's sermon because I do try to explain as best as I can how what, what, how violence fits in, uh, whether God condones these trickeries and, and, and things that, that go on. But I want to discuss this week um, why, why we on this side of the cross don't react the same way to injustice, why we don't pay back violence with violence on this side of the cross. But before we do that, I want to show how, once again, the Old Testament is concerned about justice, that that God is concerned to portray even this act of violence against um, Sisera in the context of, context of God's justice here. So, remember how we were told in the introduction that Sisera had cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years. So, Sisera wasn't a nice sort of man that you want to go out and have a beer with. I mean, he's, he wasn't that sort of man. Oppressed for 20 years. But at the end of Deborah's poem in chapter 5, you get this heart-wrenching picture of Sisera's mother. In, in chapter 5, verse 28. So take a look at uh, chapter 5, verse 28. We hear there of Sisera's mother. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice, she cried out, Why is this chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of chariot de- de- delayed? Sisera had a, had a mother, and she's waiting for him to come back from the battlefield. And she's asking herself, why isn't he coming back? But then when we're given 
we're made to feel sad, but actually then we're given the realities of the war um, that takes that sort of sympathy away in verse 30. The reason with which Sisera's mother comforts herself is this. Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man, and so on. It goes on, uh, it goes on to describe what happens in a war. She's making herself feel better by saying, surely Sisera routed his enemies, and surely he's dividing up the spoils. Surely each soldier is raping these women. One or two women per soldier is what she's saying. This isn't a rosy picture of war. This is a very realistic picture of what goes on in a war. And the point is that the Old Testament is concerned for justice. That this isn't an indiscriminate violence against Gentiles. Once again, Sisera deserved what he got. And there should be similar concern for justice in us as well. When we face ju- uh, 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 violence in this world, we, are, we, we quickly move to say, oh, we, but maybe we should forgive those people. We should love our enemies. And that's true. But I think that that, that sentiment comes very quickly to us. Part of it is because people in the developed world don't see, don't face real injustice day to day. It's those who are facing death in the concentration camp people whose daughters have been raped, siblings who have, were senselessly murdered, these are the people who seek injustice and cry, I mean, who seek, for, who seek justice. These are the people who cry out for justice right there and then. And if you think that if you were in that situation, you would also still be able to forgive those people, you certainly wouldn't be right to condemn those people who cry out for justice to be done. Sisera's death is deserved, and the Bible takes that, um, explains to you why this is deserved. But that's the thing, isn't it? Violence, the problem with violence is violence begets more violence. Even in a gang war, um, when, when, when a mur- when mur- murder happens, another murder happens, and another mur- mur- murder happens, and the cycle never stops. And so the wise among the people will say, well, so- at some point, somebody will need to suck it up and forgive those people. That's the only way violence won't go down in this forever spiral downward. But may I suggest that even then, even when you try to forgive out of your own resources, you then at some point hit a limit. I mean, how many times can you turn the other cheek out of your own kindness? How many times can you forgive when injustice keeps on happening again and again and again and again? Every, eventually, everyone hits a limit. And this is why the cross of Jesus Christ is such a game changer. The cross changes our perspective on justice forever because God sent his son to die for us, to take upon God's wrath, the justice that's supposed to be done to the other people. God says this, I'll take, upon, uh, the, 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 I'll take the punishment upon myself. We see how we have been forgiven. All the things that we have done wrong against God, against other people, God has forgiven us on the cross. And so we don't forgive out of our own resources, out of our own kindness, out of our own virtue and character. We forgive because of grace that has been received, because God has given us. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We look to the cross 
as we forgive others. And on the cross, we can still cry out for justice and forgive at the same time because we see how God sent his son to die for us. So I thought uh, Tim Keller put this really well. He puts it this way. When the people of God saw God's justice falling on sin and evil onto Jesus Christ dying on the cross, it changed our attitude towards our enemies. It is good and right to want to see justice done and evil destroyed by holy God. The Old Testament saints had a much dimmer view of what this, how this was to be done. We can now yearn for justice and still, still pray for our enemies. Deborah, Barak, and Jael didn't see the cross. They didn't know about the hope that everyone had in trusting in Jesus Christ. They had to carry this justice upon themselves. They felt that this was the right thing to do. But now we're given a fuller picture of how God wants to deal with injustice in the world. We see the cross, we yearn for justice, and we see that that is done on the cross. And we yearn for forgiveness and the end of violence, and we can do that because of the cross. This is the fuller perspective that we're given. We can forgive in this violent and unjust world, not because justice, injustice doesn't matter, but because Jesus took the, just, uh, the punishment upon himself. Um, last year in the American League Division Championship Series, this is a baseball, um, New York Yankees were playing against Baltimore Orioles. In the game three of the series, um, Yankees weren't, what to do, weren't sure what to do with uh, their star player, Alex Rodriguez, who's slumping big time. He is actually, he was last year, the highest play, uh, player um, in the entire, um, uh, uh, entire league, but he wasn't hitting well. In the final inning of the game, ninth inning, this is, uh, if you don't know baseball, ninth inning is the final inning. Ninth inning of the game, they're down, Yankees are down by one. And the manager makes a tough decision to take Alex Rodriguez out of the game and put a, a, a substitute player, Ibanez, in. And the Orioles, for the first time in 1997, looked like they were going to win. But in the ninth inning, this player, batting for the baseball's highest paid player, Ibanez, hits a home run and ties the game in the ninth inning. And so the game went on sort of overtime. And in the 12th inning, the same player hits another home run from the first pitch uh, from this other substitute uh, pitcher. And he's, uh, he's got another home run and giving the Yankees um, a stunning win over Orioles. And actually, they went on to win that series from then on. I guess what I want to say is that when God calls you to step up to the plate and do something, you just do it. You don't hesitate. Whether you think you're qualified to work for God, whether you have the courage, to, whether you think you can or evangelize in your workplace, care for the poor, fight for injustice, part, be part of building up the church, whatever it is, whatever God is calling you to do through scripture, you don't hesitate. You do it. That's how we become part of God's plan. That's how we're used by God and taste a little bit of what God has planned for the entire world. 
And God, hopefully, God, I mean, God, you will work through, uh, God will work through you and God will receive that glory. Let's pray that God will give us that courage.